Hebrews chapter 10, please. We're going to start in verse 26 this morning. The title for the message, I hope it grabs attention because this morning's passage is very sobering in its warning. But the title is, Don't Play with God. Don't toy with God, don't mess with God, don't play around with God. I once heard a man I worked with years ago, he was a good Christian, a good man. So I'm, I'm about to critique something he said, but I, I mean it from a place of love. He was, he was a good guy. But he one time shared with me in a conversation <clears throat> that when he would go share the gospel with people and they wouldn't receive Christ, he would say something like, hey, just try Jesus. Just try him out. Just see what you think about him. Live according to his ways. Try him out for a little bit and see what you think. If it doesn't work for you, you at least tried Jesus. At the time, I didn't let that sink in, but over the years, I, I've never forgotten what he said because I thought, something doesn't seem right about that. To try Jesus? It doesn't make sense. And I would say like a good guy, but I don't believe I would agree with that. I would never encourage someone to try Jesus or try God. You either repent and come fully to Christ or you don't at all. You don't just try him out. That type of mentality, though, I think is all throughout our society. It has been, honestly, since the Bible times as well. I think it's our human nature that we find ourselves at times incapable or unwilling to truly 100% commit to something. We kind of have one foot in it and one foot out of it. We dabble in it a little bit and then we get tired and we move on. I hate to talk about divorce, but I mean, just think about marriages in our country. Over 50% of marriages end in divorce. Now, there could be a million reasons why, good or bad. But the fact I just want to say is that's kind of a proof that it's in our society, it's kind of in our nature to be committed for a time and something happens and we're not committed. We're in it and then we're out. We dabble with it. We play with different things. The warning from Hebrews this morning is severe and it's a warning that a person must never, ever do that with God. A person must never play around with God. Try God out. Have one foot in God and one foot out of God. One foot in Christ and one foot out. The warning is don't play with God. Some will try God for a bit, but didn't work out for him or something, and they move on. And in fact, some church people even, play with God rather than truly commit to God. This morning, the tone, it is going to sound a little harsh, but it's the tone of the passage. Again, don't test God. Don't play around with him. Now, this passage that we're going to look at, it is, I want to be fair, it's one of those passages, we've saw one before in chapter 6. It's been hotly debated throughout church history as to who is he talking about? What kind of person is this? I'll go through that briefly as we walk through this. But I'm going to offer to you what I believe is a proper understanding of this passage. After hours of studying, this one gave me fits. I told Ashley this morning, I metaphorically felt like Jacob when he wrestled with God in the tent. I spent hours just wrestling. God, help me understand this because it is a bit challenging. But I believe we have some truth here we can see. Let's look at the passage and we'll dive into what is this warning about don't play with God. Don't, don't play being a Christian. I'd ask that you stand in honor of reading of the scripture here, starting in verse 26. He says, If we go on sinning deliberately 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned, profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, I ask now that you would bring all of my studies and all of my thoughts to bear to make this complex, complicated, and debated passage clear. Holy Spirit, would you convict hearts? Would you in encourage and inform minds this morning that everyone would leave here today having learned something that truly draws them closer in their relationship to you? And I also ask in an equal, if not greater sense, that if someone is here that was not sure about their salvation, that they would be today before they leave. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. Let's start with his first section. Uh, let's look at the dangers of what he calls deliberate continual sin. It's in the first two verses, 26 and 27. He says this phrase, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, if we go on sinning, deliberately. Let me pause there for a second. So the dangers of deliberate continual sin. If we go on sinning, that verb in the Greek it was written in is a present tense active. Again, you've probably heard that many times before, but it's important for this reason. He's not talking about someone who has sinned once in their life. He is talking about a continual, habitual, constant practice in this person's life is they're deliberately sinning over and over and over. This is their practice in life, is habitual, willful sinning. So I want to stress that because it's going to help us understand who in the world is he talking about? Is he talking about a Christian? Is he talking about a lost person? Is he talking about someone who used to be a Christian? Who is he talking about? Because we all, even as Christians, sin. And we know when we sin. And we will look at sin and know it's wrong, but give in to the temptation and sin. Is he talking about that? We'll hold that thought and we'll see who he's really talking about. He's talking about deliberately here. You could think of the word willfully or arrogantly. That word means you know the truth, you know right from wrong, yet you intentionally and purposely ignore what's right and choose to do the wrong. So we're not talking about a, a accidental sin a casual, I just kind of slipped into this or that. No, this is an intentional, purposeful attitude that this person has. They are living in sin on purpose. And he says, because the next phrase, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, again, that solidifies the point. This person knows what they're doing is wrong. They know what sin is and still choose to do it. So they know the truth. They, that, that phrase, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, I'll dive into this a little bit more later on, but let me mention this quickly here. Some have take, seen this phrase and said, oh, he's talking about a real Christian because he says they've received the truth. I want to draw out an attention here that that word received can mean, it can mean on the one hand, that this person has received, accepted, and believed the truth. For example, someone who's received Christ as their Lord and Savior. It can mean that, but I want to be clear, it doesn't have to mean that. 
It can simply mean that someone has heard the truth, acknowledged the truth, at least outwardly so, but that's as far as it goes. So don't think by this phrase, after receiving knowledge of the truth, he must be talking about a true born-again Christian. doesn't necessarily mean that. That will become clear in a moment, hopefully. This is just simply a person he's talking about who knows Christ. They've heard of Christ. They may have even said they've believed him, followed his ways a little bit. But then something happened. They now deliberately walk in a life of sin, contrary to Christ. And they know it, and they don't care. That's who he's talking about. Well, what's the danger that this person's in? He says the first danger is there no longer remains a sacrifice for their sins. In verse 26, he says, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So this person has rejected the only real sacrifice that could forgive their sins, Jesus Christ. Some have read this and said, is he talking about that if you sin too much, you can never, ever be forgiven again? Is there a line that if you cross it, you can't ever go back? That's not what he's saying, because if you notice here, what he's actually saying is, how is it that this person, it can be said about them, they no longer have a sacrifice for sins? Why is that? It's not because God won't forgive them. It's because they have abandoned or rejected the only sacrifice for sins, Jesus Christ. They have said, here's Christ, he can save me from my sins, but I don't care. Don't want him. In that sense, he says, there's no other way they can be forgiven. If you've rejected Christ and walked away from Christ, then this phrase would be true about you. There's nothing you could do, no offering you could have to be forgiven of your sins. So this person has rejected the only sacrifice they could ever have to forgive them. The law forgave sins in the Old Testament, but even in the Old Testament, we read if someone sinned deliberately, in the same sense he's talking about here, on purpose and they didn't care, even God had provisions in the law that said, you need to cut them off from the people of Israel. That high-handed, arrogant attitude towards sin is not welcome in the people and the community of God. So he says here, they've cut themselves off, they're not accepting the sacrifice of Christ, so in that sense, they have nothing else that they can get. For forgiveness well what can this person expect instead though he says well what they can expect is a terrifying expectation of judgment he starts this next sentence in verse 27 in the greek language it's very interesting in english where we put words in order of subject and then verb and then the object that the verb is talking about and so forth not to be grammatical on you but you probably get the idea in greek none of that matters in Greek, a writer puts the order of the words by significance. You can have an object that in English we would put last word in the sentence because that's proper English grammar. In Greek, it could be the first word of the sentence. Why is that? They cared about showing you what word is most important, and they put it first in the sentence. In this sentence, he puts here as the first word of this sentence just one word, and it's just simply the word terrifying frightening that's how he starts his sentence he says let me explain something to you there is a terrible terrifying frightening reality for this person and that reality is their expectation for their future should only be to realize they are going to face the judgment of god that's it and that he says that's terrifying at least it should be terrifying to them 
that the only expectation for their outcome should be if they're living in this circumstance, deliberate, willful, habitual sin, their future expectation should not be God will just forgive it all, it'll be okay. They should be terrified, he says, because their future will only hold judgment. The third danger, he says, there will be a fury of fire that will consume them. He's quoting Isaiah 26, 11 here. I won't read it to you, but you can look at it if you want. But he pulls that Old Testament verse to say, this is not new. This is not a new concept where, yes, God is love on the one hand, but on the other hand, God hates sin. He will judge it. He will consume the sinner if they do not repent. And he's trying to point that out here. They can only expect judgment because there's no sacrifice for their sins because they've rejected the sacrifice of Christ. And a fury of fire will consume them, he says. That word fury can mean zealous. It's as if God will show passion, but not a passion of love, a passion of justice given out to sinners. And it'll be a fire that consumes, and he calls them the adversaries in verse 27. A person then who has removed themselves from Jesus, rejected the only sacrifice that can save them, there's no gray area, then he says, with God. You're either in God or you're an adversary of God. You're not neutral. You're either with him or you're against him. And his adversaries, he says, what can they expect? Judgment and a consuming fire. That's what awaits them. This person has put themselves in that position, though, because of their deliberate, habitual, sinning attitude. That's how he sets up our passage this morning, a very strong warning that there's a terrifying, frightening future judgment that awaits the person who willfully, continually, deliberately sins. Now, here's the question then. If you're sitting there and you're thinking like I was studying this, I thought, am I guilty of this? Have I done this? Because to say deliberate, willful sin, that could mean a lot of things. Even as a Christian, you may understand this. We've all been there. We know what's right and wrong, but at times we don't always choose the right, do we? We sometimes choose to sin. We're tempted and we fall into it. So does that mean that every time we know not to sin, but we do sin, we're guilty of what he says here? I don't think so, and here's why. Let's look at this a little further. Because the next question could be, how often then must a person sin deliberately until they are guilty of what he's talking about here and that there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. In fact, when I studied this, it was interesting to me. I didn't know this before now. Throughout the, about the second and third centuries of when the church started after the book of Acts and all that, this passage was very much debated. And in fact, a lot of people in the church believed that what he meant was after you're baptized. If you continually sinning so much after you're baptized, you lose your salvation. So what, the, what some people did is they took that literal and they would come to Christ, they would express faith, but they would wait to get baptized until they were older in life. Because they literally thought that they could only sin a certain amount after baptism and then they lost it. So they'd wait until they're in their 60s or 70s, then get baptized and say, okay, now if I sin, I'll die soon, so not a big deal. I'm being a little facetious there, but that's kind of the tone. I want to stress that's not at all what he's talking about. But I just want you to see people have wrestled with this. Like, how much can you sin until it's too much? Like, what's going on here? Well, some people still believe that. They believe that you can lose your salvation if you 
keep sinning so much and you never repent of it, then you can lose your salvation. I think, though, there's a different answer we could look at. As Christians, we're going to sin. We shouldn't sin, but we will. We know we will. But it's a battle. It's a constant battle. Sometimes you'll win it. Sometimes you'll lose certain battles. But it's a battle that you're in. That's not necessarily what he means here. So let's answer this question. And that's our next part. Then who is he talking about? Who is this deliberate sinner? Our answer, I'm going to skip 28 for a second. Go to verse 29. I think he answers that question for us about who it is he's actually talking about. In verse 29, he's going to share three things. Let's call it a profile of the deliberate sinner. And they answer, who's he talking about? Verse 29 says this. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one, so here's their profile, who has, number one, trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant, that's number two, and the third thing, they've outraged or insulted the Spirit of grace. Let's look at those quickly. So who is this deliberate sinner? It is, first of all, someone that he refers to as they have trampled underfoot the Son of God. These three phrases we're going to mention are in a, excuse me, I'm sorry to be grammatical this morning, but it does help us. The three phrases in Greek, again, give the idea of these are not once in the past actions. The person he's talking about, and these three things we're going to mention quickly, are things that they have done, and it's a part of their life today. They explain their character. This is who they are. This is not a, I sinned once five years ago and it was really bad, but I've, I've overcome it today. That's not who he's talking about. These are people that if you looked at their life today, they're doing this stuff today. This is a part of their life. Well, the first one he called, they trampled underfoot the Son of God. Trampled underfoot literally means what it says. It means to take your foot to press down hard with the intention to cause damage is the word in Greek. So this person is, Christ is laying on the ground, metaphorically speaking, and they're stomping on him. They want to hurt him. They want to put their foot on the throat of Christ and crush his trachea. They want to cause harm because they don't care about him. They've seen Jesus Christ. They've heard the gospel and say, I don't care. In fact, they don't just say, I don't care. They want to do harm to the cause of Christ. They want to disparage the gospel They want to say it's a lie, it's a sham, it's evil, it's wicked. They want to cause harm to the gospel of Christ. The second thing he says, the next thing they've done, they've regarded as unclean the blood of Christ. That word unclean means regarded it as common. It's not a special thing. The ESV I'm reading says profaned. I do like other translations that will say has regarded as common or has regarded as unclean. Their attitude about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is, it doesn't matter. It's, that was just a man dying a criminal's death for his day. That's how they view the sacrifice of Jesus. It wasn't anything special. The blood of Christ doesn't do anything. It's common. It just doesn't matter. Now, why is he saying all this? Because remember, he could be talking to Jews who had become Christians, and the Jews around him, they were probably doing this stuff. They, they heard about these people from the Jewish community converting to Jesus, saying that he's the Messiah, and they're probably saying stuff like this. They're saying things like, that Jesus guy, he was a loser. He died on a cross, are you kidding me? He can't be the Messiah. Because doesn't the Old Testament law say, cursed is the man that hangs on a tree? Well, he hung on a tree of wood called a cross. He's a cursed man. They're disparaging Jesus. 
They're not saying special good things about him. Then they would say that sacrifice and blood that he shed, it doesn't do anything. It was just a, a dude that died by the Roman government. But what makes this so strongly put, though, is he's saying here, though, the people saying this stuff and living this way, they used to identify as a Christian. They used to be a part of the community of faith. They looked like they were a Christian. They may have went to church. They were part of their body. But now they've left, and here's what they're doing. Instead of saying they believe in Jesus, they now say, that was dumb. I hate that I ever said I believed in that Jesus guy, because that's a really dumb story. And in fact, I think this is all a sham. It's a lie. That's what they're doing. The third thing, he says, then they've insulted the Spirit of grace. So they've, this is the Holy Spirit he's talking about. We're saved by grace, and these people have abandoned Christ. They've probably gone back to a works-based system and said, you know, this whole saved by grace stuff and no need for a sacrifice. I don't believe that anymore. That's phony. We need the works. We need the sacrifices. We need the law. And he says, well, what they've done is they've insulted the Holy Spirit. How can that be? Because it's the Holy Spirit that convicts the heart of their sin and their need to repent and believe in Jesus. Well, if someone then says they believed in Jesus and then later rejects that and walks away, he bluntly says here, what you've really done is insulted the Holy Spirit. You've offended him. Again, look at the three things quickly again. It's very severe. They walked all over Jesus to cause him harm. They regard his sacrifice as meaningless, and they insult the Holy Spirit of grace. That's why I said earlier, he's not talking about a real Christian. He's not talking about a Christian who's backslidden into some sin and they're struggling with a habitual sin. I don't believe he's talking about that person at all. Now, that is a problem if a Christian's in that, but again, I don't think that's who we're looking at today. He would be talking about this word, an apostate. We've mentioned that before. An apostate is someone who used to claim they're a Christian. They profess Jesus they might point to a period in their life in the past where they said, yep, I came down, I repented of my sins, I prayed a prayer, whatever they say they did. They claim that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. But then, as time went on, something happened and they said, forget it. I don't believe that stuff anymore. Church is pointless. The Bible's pointless. Jesus is pointless. That's not for me anymore. That's an apostate. They used to identify, but they walk away. They don't identify with it anymore. I, that's who I believe he's talking about. Someone who claimed it and left it. Now the phrase, though, in the verse 29, he says they consider as unclean the blood of Christ, but then he says the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. That has caused some to say, and that's where it gets tricky, I want to be honest, some say, no, he is talking about a real Christian. Because, he, remember earlier he said they've received the truth, like received the gospel, and now here he says in verse 29, they've been sanctified by the blood of Christ. Again, I just want to point out, that is one possible meaning of the words, but it doesn't have to be. Another possible meaning is they heard the truth, said they believed the truth, but they really didn't. And then by him saying they've been sanctified by the blood of Christ, again, that could be an outward show, so to speak. They identified with the church. They identified with the body of Christ. They appeared as though they were sanctified. They said they were. They said they were set apart for Christ. They may have even lived like they were set apart for Christ for a period and then they walked away. They canceled it all. That's who I think he's talking about here. 
the rest of the New Testament, like we said before, teaches, I believe, very strongly that a real child of God cannot lose their salvation. You cannot be born again and unborn again. You cannot be adopted into the family of God and then God kick you out. If someone says they would belong to Christ, but then later walked away, well, what happened? They never really belonged in the first place. They said it, but they didn't mean it. That's the difference. If you've ever wondered about this, I've shared this before already, I know, but I love this parable of Jesus. I think it explains this. Jesus tells the parable of the sowers, and he says, you have a farmer there spreading the seed to grow the crop. Some of the seed falls on the hard ground, the birds pick it up, nothing happens. Some of the seed falls on soil that's very rocky in the bottom. It has a little bit of root, it grows a little bit. But then as soon as uh, the sun comes on real hot, it just withers away. It didn't have strong root. It didn't take hold. And then you had a type of soil that was growing up around thorns and briars and thistles, and it choked it out and it went away. Only one in four of the soils Jesus mentioned had good, deep, rich soil that produced lasting crop. And he interprets that in Matthew 13, 18 through 23. The disciples asked him, said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, here's what I mean. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the gospel you could say, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. That is the soil on the hard path. Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately, that's the key, immediately receives it with joy. Yet they have no root in themselves and they endure for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word or on account of the gospel, they fall away. That phrase has been in Hebrews before. Don't fall away. Don't fall away. Can a real Christian fall away? No. Jesus answers that here. Someone who received the gospel because it was an emotional response. Their friends were going down to the altar, so they went too. This happens at church camp all the time, unfortunately. There's this strong, passionate call, and all these teenagers come rushing down, and someone sees their friend, and they go, and they point to that time in their life when they were 14, 15, 16. They got saved at church camp. Then they get in their 30s, and it's like, where'd they go? What happened? It was an emotional response. And once life got real and serious, it didn't mean anything to them. So Jesus says that was never a real Christian. That was an outwardly appearing Christian just for a season. Next one, he says, there was also seed sown among the thorns. And this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Another type of person says, I believe in Jesus too. I'm a Christian, but then they get going in life. I would explain it like this in this category. There's people that get involved in church, they claim Christ, they appear to be a very strong Christian, but then as time goes on, they fall away. What happened to them? They were in a season in life where they needed the church. They were in a bad situation and they needed help. They needed support, they needed encouragement, they needed whatever, fill in the blank. There was something they were getting from the church because it fit what they needed in their life at that moment. But the second they either started getting a better job and making more money or fill in the blank, whatever else changed in their life, they didn't need the church anymore, they, meaning they didn't need God. Well, what does that mean? They never had God. It was just something that filled a void for that moment, and once they filled it with something else, they didn't need it anymore. Only one in four, Jesus says in verse 23, the good soil hears the word, understands it, and it bears fruit. Not only does it bear fruit, it spreads and grows into more fruit. 
I think that's an answer to this passage. These are people, he's saying, who had outwardly professed and identified with Christ for whatever reason they had. Emotional response, it filled a void they needed. It was the thing to do at that time because your friend group was in it, whatever you have. Your mom and dad maybe made you or it was just expected of you. But then when life circumstances changed, they bail. They don't need it anymore. And Hebrews says here, that's the one I'm talking about. They've walked away, and what they're really doing is they're saying, I didn't mean what I said. I lied about Jesus, and I don't consider his sacrifice meaningful at all. It doesn't matter. And then he said, they're really insulting the Holy Spirit. What can they expect? He used that word, terrifying is their future. They can only expect judgment in a consuming fire. I want to quote to you a theologian. His name is N.T. Wright. He's a British guy. Not to make fun of him, but I usually think he's N.T. wrong. I don't always agree with him. But I think N.T. Wright got this right. So I want to read this quote from him about this passage. He says, The writer of Hebrews realizes and wants his readers to realize it too, that the alternative is to go back to a place where there is no promise of new covenant blessing. He means the Jews that had converted to Christ, at least they said they had, He says the temptation that he wants him to see is to go back to Judaism and abandon Christ. So he says here's someone who has, this is the point to get, they've heard the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. They've even come into the fellowship with the people, that'd be the church, who hold it fast and live by it. But then in turn, they turn away and declare that it's all rubbish. Is a British word for you. They turn away and declare it's all rubbish, and he or she doesn't want anything to do with it anymore. Such a person, says Hebrews, is trampling God's Son under their foot, treating the covenant of his blood as though it were meaningless, and despising and insulting the Holy Spirit of God, through whom comes saving grace. I think he got that dead on right. That's who he's talking about. They identified for a bit, were involved for a bit, and then later on they said forget it. He says, that's a dangerous place to be. They played with Jesus. They played with God. They dabbled in it for a bit, and then they left it. Well, then he goes on. There's a stronger punishment then on this deliberate sinner. Verses 28 and 29. Stronger punishment then awaits them. Let me go back to verse 28. He's going to use an argument here of the lesser thing to the greater. He's going to say, "If, if the lesser reality is true, how much more so will the greater thing happen? The lesser thing in verse 28 is he talks about the law of Moses. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In the law of Moses, if you willfully, deliberately rejected some of the core commands, like don't keep the Sabbath holy, you just willfully violate that, it called for you to be stoned to death. But you had to have witnesses, but if if there were, they said, yeah, I saw him, he did it. And in fact, he knew what was right and he ignored it. He did it anyways. That kind of high-handed arrogance against against God's law, he says, called for the death penalty. So he then uses that to say, if that's how it worked in the law of Moses, and that was just Moses, how much stricter and more severe of a punishment will someone get who ignores the very Son of God? That led into verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one? And then he gave the three things. That's dangerous ground to be on. Think about this for a moment. Someone who has walked all over Jesus, regarded his sacrifice as meaningless, and insults the Holy Spirit. You don't want to be in that position. 
a stronger punishment awaits. How can that be so? Because in the law of Moses, the punishment was just physical. It's a strong punishment, don't get me wrong, you were physically killed. But that's the point. It was physical punishment. God can punish the soul for all eternity. Jesus said that. Don't fear man. All man can do to you is kill you. You say, well, that's pretty bad. It is, but if you believe in eternity, it's not the end game. He says, fear God, who can also punish you after you die. That's the one you worry about. The final thing to point out, he says, God's terrifying judgment then will come on the deliberate sinner. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He's quoting Deuteronomy 32, 35, and 36 now to simply say this. We've seen this before in the Old Testament, he says. This is not new that God would do this to someone. Yes, God is love. He extends grace and mercy. But the person who will raise their hand in arrogance against God will face his vengeance. God has said it before. He will carry out vengeance and judgment on those who oppose him. And interesting, in the second phrase of verse 30, he says God will even judge his people. Well, in context of Deuteronomy, he was talking about the people of Israel. Because there were people that were a part of that nation physically, outwardly, but they really were not an Israelite in the heart. So in that sense, he says, even God will render judgment among his people. I picture that as a, it's a type of purging of the bad from the good, the real from the phony. God will not be mocked as his point. God is love, but he's also a jealous God of justice and judgment. God will judge the world, but he will also judge those who outwardly played church. They looked like they were part of God's people, but they really weren't. And then finally, verse 31, he comes back full circle. He started with, I said earlier, that word at the beginning of the sentence, terrifying. He does it right here again in verse 31. He puts that word at the front of this sentence to say, here's another terrifying thing to think about. Fearful or terrifying, he says, would it be to fall into the hands of the living God? Because God is alive, he's real, he's the only real God, and he says if you're that person who's trampled his son underfoot, insulted his Holy Spirit, considered the sacrifice of Christ as meaningless and nothing, and you've played church and played around with God, then one day this person will stand before God and they will not face a God of love. They will face a God that extends out furious fire and consumes them. And he says that should terrify people if they're in this position. The warning then from Hebrews, the passage is this, the warning from this passage would be, it's a warning, I'm going to quote N.T. right again, I like how he says this, this passage then is a warning about a more specific danger, that someone who has come close to Christian faith, again, they've come close to real faith, perhaps shared in the life of Christian worship, but then they turn around and publicly deny it all. I think he's dead on right again. That's what he's talking about. There's three groups I believe this passage touches on, and they're these. One group would be authentic Christians, real Christians by faith in Christ. They're going to hear this, and they're going to begin to ask themselves, I need to make sure I don't do this. I need to make sure I'm staying strong in the faith that I'm pressing on. They're going to hear this and say things like, I've not done this, but I want to make sure I don't ever do this by the grace of God. So a real Christian here then is going to hear this warning and use it to propel them into greater faithfulness. 
The second group would be those who outwardly play Christian. They look like a Christian on the outside, but inwardly have never come to Christ. They're going to hear this warning and say something like this. He's not talking about me. That doesn't apply to me. That message has nothing to do with me. If that's what someone says, then that is a triggering sign that they possibly have a hard heart that's never really repented and been humbled by the grace of God. Because when the pressure comes, they may find that they never really had faith in Christ. They had him for a season, but it didn't mean much. They walk away. Maybe their parents made them be in church. Maybe they were dating someone who was in church. And they changed something about themselves to fit what they needed or what they could gain. And they were a part of the church. But then, time will only tell, they fall away. That's the second group who just simply says, this doesn't mean anything to me, doesn't apply to me. The third group would be those who have made a decision in their mind already, or have publicly already said this, that they no longer believe in this Jesus and Christian stuff. They once identified with it, maybe when they were a kid or however they were raised, but later on they said, no, I've, I've moved on. I outgrew that. I don't do that anymore. That was a phase, they might say. Those last two groups are who this warning really applies to. He would say there no longer remains a sacrifice for them to be forgiven because they've completely rejected the Son of God. There's no other way they can be saved. What can they expect? That furious fire of God's judgment one day. How do you know which group you might be in? You would ask yourself something like this. What's your relationship with Christ today? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just your genie that you pull off the shelf when you, life is hard and you need help? Or is Christ your very identity? He is who you are, is a person that's a follower of Christ. There's a big difference. Is he your Lord and Savior? Does he define every aspect of your existence? Or, you'd ask another question then, what's your relationship to sin? See, a real Christian will still sin, but when they sin, it will bother them deeply. When you sin, do you feel conviction? Not that you got caught. We're talking just only you know it. You and God. And you sinned. What do you feel? A real Christian will be driven to repent and confess because they know what they did was wrong and it violated God's holiness and they will hate it. Someone who is guilty of this warning passage may have more of the attitude of like, I don't really think it matters. No one saw it. It doesn't matter. God forgives anyways, right? So I can do whatever I want. That is who he's warning against here. This is what he meant by deliberate. They heard the gospel. They maybe said they believed it, but they still go on living in a life of willful sin. They do it anyways. They don't care. A real Christian can still sin, but they're going to feel a tearing in their soul that they're convicted over what they're doing is wrong. They're going to hate it. A false Christian that plays around with God, they're not going to show that kind of concern. In that sense, again, he says there no longer remains a sacrifice. It's not that you can't be forgiven. It's that in that present state that he's talking about, they will not want to be forgiven because they don't want anything to do with Christ. So the question would be, what group are you in? The real believers that say, I hear this, I want to press on. Yes, this speaks to me, that sin is real and I want to overcome it. Or the fake Christians that say, I don't think this matters much. Not sure what you're really getting at. Doesn't mean much to me. Or maybe someone has said, I used to do that stuff, but I don't care about it anymore. 
Those last two are the warning. Be terrified, he would say, about the reality that really awaits that person. If you've ignored or abandoned the only offer of salvation, then there is no other hope. But today, someone could say, I have done that, but I want to repent and come back. You can. You simply have to truly mean it from your heart and repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, and you can have that sacrifice of sins offered to your life. I want to offer us a moment to pray, have Bruce's people come. If you would, join me in standing. And as you do, that's my charge to you this morning. Real Christians, let this propel you to greater confidence to overcome sin, knowing that God has saved you. If you're unsure, I know I said I would leave, but listen, I think those teenage girls would understand if I said I stayed behind because someone needed Jesus. I will gladly talk to you about Christ. I want you to know that before you leave. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for this very challenging passage with a sobering warning to not play around with God, to not play with the things of your word, but to mean them with full commitment and full repentance. I pray that everyone here would be in that first group, Lord, that they would know with settled conviction and assurance that they have a home in heaven because you've forgiven their soul from their sins. God, help us to live passionate lives for you that seek to overcome sin. Help us to be a tool and instrument to help others who maybe are struggling to understand salvation, that we could help them understand it, or to maybe help a wayward person we care about to come back to the fold. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.